In the run-up to November's general elections, KUOW is hosting debates between candidates for all city council positions. First up, District 4. It covers the U District, Wallingford, Ravenna, and Eastlake. And let's meet the candidates. Rob Johnson is an executive director of Transportation Choices, a statewide organization working on non-car transportation alternatives. And Michael Maddox, he's a litigation paralegal. Previously, he worked in healthcare and was a labor activist. District 4 is one of the friendlier races in the city. The two candidates recently carpooled to an endorsement meeting. Ross Reynolds talked to them about everything from affordable housing to police reform. His first question, what makes District 4 unique from the rest of Seattle? Candidate Rob Johnson says it's an especially diverse district. You know, we've got a lot of renters. We've got a lot of single-family homeowners. We've got, you know, one of, if not the largest employers in the city slash the state here at the University of Washington. So we've got a really, but we also have small business districts too. So we've got a really diverse group of folks that um, I think are a really nice reflection of the whole city. Um, When I'm out knocking on doors, you know, I hear a lot about public safety. I hear a lot about public transportation. I hear a lot about public schools. I don't think that that's very different from what you hear in the fifth district or the third district or the first district. So I think we're in a unique time in the city's history where I think across districts, people are seeing a lot of the same priorities. Uh, Michael, the same question for you. You know, I did a candidates forum in District 5, and there was a lot about sidewalks, which mm. seems particular to that district. What's particular about District 4 different from other districts? Yeah, it's, I think it's difficult to say that there's anything uh, one single issue. It's, you know, as Rob pointed out, it's a very socioeconomically diverse uh, district. We've got a lot of great small business uh, uh, commercial corridors throughout the district. And a lot of what I've I've heard, because I've made it a point to go across the city, because at the end of the day, while we're representing a district, we're still going to be making policy affecting the city as a whole. And people want clean, safe, welcoming parks. They want uh, to know that their cars and their houses aren't getting broken into. They want you know, good public schools, good transit, um, and they want an affordable city. That's something that traverses all of our districts across the city of Seattle. Um, the one thing I was just thinking about this just now, I think what we don't have is any major hills for me to have to bike up, which is making the campaign a lot easier. Uh, Michael, do you support this $930 million Move Seattle levy that will be on the ballot with you? Um, I wholeheartedly intend on voting for Move Seattle. I think that you know we have a significant backlog of major maintenance needs within our transportation uh, uh, arena, something I think at the tune of 3 to $4 billion. And while I would have preferred the Lakata Amendment to spread the love around with respect to utilizing impact fees, a commercial parking tax, and employee hours tax, that was unsuccessful. But that does not change the fact that we have this need. If we don't make the investment now, the, 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 the cost is just going to balloon and get even bigger. Well, to that point, some have criticized it for not having enough money to fix the infrastructure we already have. You think it's still worth supporting? I, I think we still need to make these investments. I mean, there's there's uh, money that's going to go to improve freight mobility. We need to make sure our port can continue uh, uh, working to create those good-paying jobs. There's money that's going to make sure that the buses that we just uh, expanded, the bus service we just expanded last year, can actually get out of traffic and get to their own individual lanes, as well as making sure that our bridges and our roads are continue to be safe. So I, I do think it's a necessary investment. Rob, how about you? Do you support the Move Seattle levy? Absolutely. You know, my organization, Transportation Choices Coalition, has been really active in just about every major transportation infrastructure decision in the last 15 or 20 years as a city and as a state. So we're running the campaign out of our offices. We're working really hard to make sure that that thing passes in three weeks. It's a lot of money. And uh, some people are feeling as though these taxes are getting larded on too heavy. 
What do you have to say to them? You know, one of the the most frequent things I hear from people in the doors is just that, boy, this is really expensive. And then they give me the laundry list of things that they want to get done in their neighborhood. So it, it's uh, one of those situations where we don't get to have it both ways. Either we want that infrastructure improvements in our neighborhoods and we're going to have to find a way to pay for it. Or we let the infrastructure lag and we take a break. And I'm a big believer that the longer we wait, the more expensive these things become. And as a city, we're growing exponentially. So how do we do a good job of um, focusing that development and that density in places where it makes a lot of sense? And how do we make sure that we uh, we really do a good job of targeting our infrastructure dollars in places that are going to be most meaningful? And I think that's what the levy does a good job of. To the last point, uh, another criticism of the levy is accountability. How are we going to be sure that that $930 million is going to be spent correctly? I've gone through it and looked at it, and it looks like a lot of the specific decisions are pushed into the future. Yeah, I think that there are two ways that, that we're going to do a good job of making sure that the voters understand how the projects are going to be spent. One is we continue with the existing oversight panel that exists right now for the current levy that's expiring. Those citizens do an excellent job of reporting out on how the dollars have been spent. And the second is, as a city council, we could do a much better job of reporting out on an annual basis the outcomes associated with the levy. We haven't done that very well for the, the current transportation levy. In the future, I'd like to see us do a better job with reporting out those annual um, outcomes. Rob, Seattle's expecting thousands of new residents over the coming years, and some point to the fact that Seattle's single-family neighborhoods make up two-thirds of the city's land area. They say this is a place we must add more residents. Do you agree? Uh, you know, I think we are really experiencing significant growth, and the statistics really bear that out. We grew by about 10% in each of the decades of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. We've grown by about 10% in the first five years of this decade. So we're really seeing a lot of that growth. For me, I think that the most important thing we can do with new uh, residents is to focus them in dense neighborhoods where we already have really great public transportation. That means in places like here, the University District, the Roosevelt neighborhood in Northgate, that's going to reduce the pressure on building out in those single-family neighborhoods. But there's going to have to be some conversation about increasing some of the size of the urban village boundaries that we have. There's got to be conversations about opening up accessory dwelling units for those mother-in-law apartments that I think folks like my family who are interested in having our parents move back to the neighborhood, we're going to really need those options uh, to really be an inclusive city. So from my perspective, it's not a question of whether we are going to grow, but how. And when you say you mentioned a couple of ideas for increasing density in single-family neighborhoods, are those is that the end of your list of things we would do to increase density in oh, single-family neighborhoods? You know, I think one. Of, I think yes, accessory dwelling units are important. I think we need to have conversations about height increases here in the university district, which is going to be really important. But most importantly, I think is neighborhood planning. We had award-winning nationally and internationally. Uh, neighborhood plans in the 80s and 90s. I want us to get back to that neighborhood planning process to really allow neighborhoods to determine where they want that growth to go and what they want it to look like. Michael Maddox, uh, do you agree with that approach to dealing with the housing crisis and particularly with single-family neighborhoods, which I want to focus on because they make up so much of the land space? And, And I'll gladly answer that question specifically. And I think that we do need to look at other options with respect to housing types throughout the city of Seattle. Um, right now, if you're a small family like mine, you can't afford to even have a homeownership opportunity anywhere in the city. I think that if we have opportunities to do things such as duplexes and triplexes where each one is individually owned, some sort of a co-op system, 
income within the existing uh, 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 framework of the existing structure. It's in a single-family area. That's not a bad thing necessarily. And in fact, we can keep the, that look of the neighborhood, that character of the neighborhood um, that, that people think is um, very important. And I agree with that. We can keep that but still open up more opportunities for our kids and our grandkids to afford to be able to actually have a home ownership opportunity in the city of Seattle. Of course, that was in the Housing Affordability Committee report that came out. The mayor dropped that like a hot potato, as did other council members who came out standing right next to him behind that report. There seems to be a lot of community opposition to the idea of duplexes and triplexes in single-family neighborhoods. When I'm out knocking on doors, I don't hear that. What I hear is concern of lot line to lot line construction, concern of of parking mitigation strategies, and concern of giving away everything for developer profit and not allowing any sort of community profit. And I think that we have an opportunity where we can expand the the, the, the ability for families to continue to live in the city of Seattle. We have a family size housing affordability crisis particularly, something I experience regularly because there's no two, three, or four bedroom units that are available that are affordable in the city anymore. And this is an opportunity that we have to make sure that we open the the gates of our city for everybody. Rob Johnson, I, I don't hear you going that far in saying that we should add duplexes, triplexes, and single-family neighborhoods. You would not go that far? Yeah. You know, I think that the mayor's taking it off the table. I'm not sure that we're going to go back to it, but I would support us taking another look at, at expanding duplexes and triplexes. I was in Windermere just last weekend knocking on doors. There's a triplex in the neighborhood. I heard a lot from um, neighbors about concerns about opening that up, and I showed them that picture that I took with my cell phone of a triplex in their neighborhood, and they said, that doesn't look bad. I wouldn't oppose something like that coming to my neighborhood. So I think so much of this conversation is about style and and um, fear, and we need to have an open conversation. I heard Michael saying he would do it. You're saying you'd look at it. Well, I think that this is a complicated process. We didn't have the, the opportunity to really engage folks. We, we've got 65 recommendations here in the Holler Report. All of those 65 recommendations are going to go through a council process for adoption. So I'd like to put it back on the table. Does it mean it gets um, passed? I don't, I don't know. And, and, and I think that the one thing that I recall from the recommendations was that it would start with pilot projects. We can actually have that opportunity for people who want this in their neighborhoods to bring it to their neighborhoods. And then folks across the city could see this is what we're talking about. This is what it looks like. This is the fit. And we remove that barrier of fear. And we can have more opportunity throughout the city to have that opportunity. Here's another idea that's come up for affordable neighborhoods some form of rent control, if the state legislature allowed Seattle to impose some form of rent control, would you support some form of rent control for Seattle, Michael? I mean, that's a really, there's a lot of complicated issues there with respect to what what is the actual year-over-year cost and the inflation for maintaining a building, particularly for our smaller landlords. Um, I think I was watching something on the, on television, and uh, Tim Burgess had indicated that he might be supportive, that he would be supportive even of a limit of 25 or 50 percent year-over-year rent increases. Um, when I talk about my rent increases every year, it's 8 percent, and that's not nearly that much compared to what a lot of other people are experiencing. We have a, a significant issue right now where we're seeing people literally getting priced out of their homes in order to maximize profit. Um, and you know, But to the extent we are going to look at any sort of rent stabilization measures or capping move-in fees, uh, at the same time, we have to recognize that that means we're going to need to build a whole lot more housing because that's where the issue is coming up. Okay, so I hear a maybe. 
depending on how, what form of rent control I'm not comes. I'm opposed to it. Not at all. I mean, okay. you know, people say it doesn't work in San Francisco, New York. Great. That means we don't do what they're doing in San Francisco, New York. We can reinvent the wheel. Rob Johnson, how about that? I mean, there are some who say it's clear that rent control doesn't work. You look at cities that some of the cities that have rent control, they've got some of the highest rents in the country. Would you support it if Seattle could impose it? You know, I'm, I'm in the same position as Michael. I wouldn't oppose it, but I just don't think that it's coming anytime soon. The state legislature would have to give us that authority for us to impose some kind of rent control. So I would be more focused on solutions that I think are realistic. And one of those would be, how do you work with existing landowners who need to do ADA or fire life safety or energy efficiency retrofits and give them the capital resources they need to do to make those improvements and instead um, encourage them to sign covenants with the city that would say, I'm going to rent to a person at a particular level of the area median income over a particular period of time. I think that that kind of rent uh, stabilization measure is going to be more effective in the short term and in the long term. You know, a lot of this discussion about how we can make sure that Seattle is affordable to everyone revolves around what government and what nonprofits can do. Can government and nonprofits solve this problem? You know, I think we have a significant role to play in the the zero to 30% affordable housing crisis. So those folks who really aren't making any income or making very little income, government's got a huge role to play in building out that very low subsidized affordable housing. And that's why we need to increase the size of the housing levy next year to be able to really build out more affordable housing. But one of the other things that we can really do is change some of the zoning laws to allow for denser and taller buildings to help manage that growth in places where it makes sense, like around the light rail stations. So I think that there's a lot of solutions the government can offer. And the hollow recommendations offer a really good blueprint over the next couple of years about what the pathway to affordability would look like. And I think that it's uh, really significant because it's supported by such a broad coalition of organizations. Michael Maddox, can government do enough to solve this crisis? And if not, what else should be done in order to encourage the private sector to build more housing? I think that the reality is that no individual sector is going to do it all on their own. Um, uh, you know, Trickle-down housing economics alone is not going to solve the problem, but that doesn't mean we don't need to encourage more growth. At the same time, we need to get in as a government, I believe, and do things such as uh, support our nonprofit organizations in construction of of affordable units for folks at 30% or below area median income. And I would actually also be very, very supportive of dipping into bonding capacity specifically to purchase existing multifamily and even build or land trust more uh, land for uh, family-sized units, but uh, particularly of folks at 60% to 30% AMI to make sure that we're, we are getting into the market as well as a city. I think that's going to help de- uh, put some d- downward pressure on some of the rent increases we're seeing. Rob Johnson, how about that? Would you support the city using its bonding capacity, in other words, borrowing money in order to build affordable housing? Yeah, I would. And I think that one of the things that we should be looking at more closely is what what lands do we have in the city that are publicly owned that we could be targeting for affordable housing. I want to make sure that if we do that, we're targeting them in places where we've got really great access to public transit, so we're not leaving people stranded on an island where they can't really get anywhere they want to go, and also give them access to uh, really great neighborhood services. So it's got to be close to a grocery store. It's got to be close to parks and open space. But, you know, I'm not sure that I want the city to become a landlord in that way. You know, I'm more interested in entering into these covenants with private landlords to help make sure that we maintain affordability. Having the city go out and buy um, buildings to become landlords is not something that I think is the right approach. Is that different from what Michael just said? I think so. As I understood it, Michael was interested in seeing the city actually take ownership of some properties and become a landlord. and, And I don't think that that's the right approach for us. 
Are you satisfied, Rob, with how Seattle has gone forward to implement police reforms? We're in it with a consent degree with the Department of Justice. They found that the Seattle police use excessive force. We're in sort of the period where they're trying to fix that. Is it? Are we doing it? You know, I think that we have a lot of work we still need to do to continue to reform the police department. I think Chief O'Toole has taken a really good first step. I think it's important for us to make sure that we continue to make permanent the, the Citizens Oversight Committee. Um, I, I also strongly recommend us opening up the ability for us to be able to hire outside the department for the Office of Professional Accountability. Those are the folks who investigate officers after an incident. Right now, that those, come, those uh, investigations come from within the department. So I think hiring outside citizens to be able to, to do that job, I think, is going to be really important. Michael, are you satisfied with what the city and police department are doing in order to meet the terms of this uh, consent decree? I think it's going to be a very long process, and we're taking really good steps. Um, there are some additional things we can um, be doing to implement the recommendations from the Community Police Commission, notably, as Rob mentioned, allowing OPA to hire investigators from outside the police department. At the same time, um, some significant reformations of the D- Disciplinary Review Board, so it's no longer an officer, a sergeant, and somebody else who are performing reviews of discipline uh, against officers who are uh, alleged to have engaged, or who have been found to have been engaged in excessive force. There, I think, should be more community input on uh, on that on a more community oversight role of that uh, particularly and we need to do these things I think because we need to restore faith and trust in our police department so we can hire more officers that we need throughout the city and we while we're doing that hire from within the city and hire from within our community so our force looks more like our city Michael if you're elected how are you going to um, interact with the citizens in district 4 if I have a problem in district 4 can I call you up on your phone how, how are you going to help me? How are you going to provide constituent service? Uh, my, my my campaign team hates this. I just give out my cell phone number to anybody who asks for it, and we actually put it on our mail pieces in our primary mail, um, and it's on the website and everything. I, I think that we need to be available. That starts right now as a candidate. Um, I've been a big proponent and I, from the very beginning of ensuring that we have an office in the district where I'll spend as much time as possible, even if I have to pay for it out of my own pocket. And either myself or staff will be there. We'll be there after hours so that when working folks are getting home, they don't have to take time off work to schlep downtown to meet with their council member, I'm going to be available in the community, going out to community meetings and being a member of our community, just like I always have been. Wow. Rob, will you put out your cell phone so people can call you if they've got a barking dog in the neighborhood or it, something? It's already happened, too. You know, I think that that's one of the hallmarks of our race is, is both Michael and I have been very transparent about how easy it is for us to get a, a hold of each other and how easy it is for uh, constituents to get a hold of us. Uh, I was a uh, uh, I was talking to my campaign manager last night who was out knocking on doors yesterday, and a citizen had a question. He said, can you give him a call? I called him back, left him a message. We talked this morning. So there's a lot, I think, of transparency in in this race, which is, I think, what folks wanted when they voted for district elections. Like Michael, I would be very honored to, to, if get elected, to open a district office so you don't need to come downtown on a work day to to get what you need done. And I think that when I hear from people, the most common complaint is, small things constituent service needs. They want their potholes fixed. They want to understand how they can cut through red tape to open a business. Those are things that we need to be doing as, as uh, council members to be responsive to the citizens in the neighborhood. But you will put your cell phones on do not disturb between midnight and 5 a.m., <laughs> won't you? I, I hope. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, uh, for yeah, sure. got, yeah, yeah, I probably will. But, okay. I mean, but there are people who are working it that late, who are getting home that late. And I think that you know, if they want to call and leave me a message, I won't hear it until the morning, but okay. by all means. Now, we've talked a lot about what you as city council members might do, but as you're well aware, you can't get anything done unless you get five votes. What if, is there from your career, Rob, that suggests that you're someone who can not only 
come be right on the issues, yeah. but also get the votes to get this passed at city council? Yeah, that's a really important question, Ross. You know, I think um, I've got a lot of experience at City Hall building coalitions to get good stuff done. You know, the, you, the last couple of years, you look at what's been happening in Olympia and transportation choices, along with our partners in the business and labor community, have been working really hard to advance a transportation infrastructure plan out of Olympia. And I'm proud to say that just this year, we got a $15 billion plan that's going to authorize another $15 billion worth of funding for sound transit. That's the kind of coalition building experience that I have, and I think it speaks to the the kind of process that I would bring to being a city council member, um, not just at the state level, but also through a whole lot of different um, transportation projects at the local level. I've worked with business, labor, environmental organizations. That's why I've been endorsed by such a broad coalition of folks, and I think that that speaks to my ability to get stuff done. Michael, what evidence do you have that you could uh, sway the minds of other council members to get things done as a council member? I have really long and broad experience doing just that in various other settings, whether it was being at the bargaining table, representing working families, and working to ensure that all of us were on the same page on our end to make to, to do that contract negotiation. The last five years being on the Parks Levy Oversight Committee, having to work with other uh, Levy Oversight Committee members to get to the majority votes on some of the more contentious votes that we had. Um, my experience with uh, seven years in leadership within the Democratic Party, which means you have to get folks on board to support resolutions and various policy proposals, um, and I mean, just a host of other things such as that where I've just been involved in having to make those uh, those uh, uh, arguments successfully to get to fifty uh, percent plus one. And I think that you know that is, that effectiveness I think has earned me the support of over twenty current former elected officials, a host of labor unions, and civil rights and social justice organizations who know that I'm going to be there and I'm going to be working hard. Uh, and particularly working hard to collaborate with neighborhood leaders, with our small business community, with working people to be at the table advocating for them, not advocating for the Rental Housing Association or asking for folks to capitulate to their needs. Rob, there's an initiative on the ballot with you that supports uh, the aim is to get big money out of politics in Seattle. It imposes contribution limits and it gives some citizens $100 vouchers to support candidates. Do you support this initiative 122? I do support that initiative, and, and I uh, I think that that's really important for us to be able to give the voice to the people who feel like they really want to see a different direction for the city. Um, I, as somebody who's knocked on just about 7,500 doors myself, my campaign's knocked on over 25,000. You know, I think that that grassroots activism, that sort of shoe leather campaigning is a lot of the reason why people voted for district elections. And so I think that this honest elections process, uh, which has received wide support from just about every candidate who's on the ballot this November is going to be really important for the city as we move forward. Michael, you're nodding your head. Yes, you also support Initiative 122. In fact, if you watch their uh, their commercial, I'm in it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm a big supporter of everything we can to get big money out of politics and have it be more toward, uh, more directed towards people and individuals. Uh, I think that's going to be vital to preserving our democracy and ensuring that we're representing the people of our respective districts. I'm actually very proud to have the lowest um, average contribution of any candidate in the city of Seattle right now. Um, and that's because we were going out there talking with people who have never donated before and don't really have a lot of money, but we're willing to kick in $10, $25, whatever it might be. I think this is going to be an opportunity to get more folks involved and engaged in our political process. Michael, elections are about choices. Why should voters chose you instead of your opponent, Rob Johnson? What's the difference? (laughs) Well, V-necks versus uh, crew necks. No, I, I think that you know that that that's been kind of the big issue in this race that I've seen a lot is that we are different. There are um, and some of our styles has been a big 
portion. Uh, you know, and for me, I do come at this with a, with a little bit more gung-ho, a little more passion. And it's just my background has led me to that. You know, when I was uh, young, when I came out of the closet, I lived in a shelter briefly. When I worked for Planned Parenthood, it was at a time when people were uh, threatening to kill people who are working for Planned Parenthood, not just the, the doctors performing abortions. And so I get I get a little passionate, particularly around homeless youth, particularly around um, what we're doing with respect to protecting access to reproductive health care. And it's that kind of passion, that kind of out-of-the-box thinking on top of it from the work that I did with the Park District um, last year that I, bring to the, that I bring to the table, a willingness to be particularly bold and really be an advocate for the people, the small businesses, the working families in District 4. Rob, your opponent claims to have more passion. <laughs> uh, why are you, why should someone vote for you rather than your opponent? Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm a fifth generation Seattleite and I really care about the growth and the future of the city. And as an urban planner, I feel like I've got a really strong set of policies, uh, knowledge and skills to really implement really better plans for the city moving forward. I think we're at this incredible inflection point and somebody like me who's got an extensive background in land use and transportation planning can really help us as we move forward, build an affordable city and in a city that's a lot easier to get around. I would also say that I've got a lot of really great experience in actually getting stuff done at this city. You know, worked on the bus campaign last year that's provided the largest increase in public transportation in the city's history. We're about six months away from opening the light rail at Husky Stadium in Capitol Hill, which was a campaign that I was a co-lead on in 2008. So I've got a lot of experience building out better infrastructure for the city, and I've got a set of technical skills that I think will really serve us valuable right now. Finally, bonus question, Bernie Saunders or Hillary Clinton? Rob? Oh, it's been really hard to pay attention to anything outside of a Seattle City Council District 4 race, so I haven't really dug in my sleeves uh, enough to be able to, to figure out exactly which side I'm on yet. Michael, you want to jump in on that? There's only one candidate running for president that has added uh, a conversion to the metric system to his platform. That is Lincoln Chafee. And as of now, I'm committed to caucus for Lincoln Chafee. 